Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Good uh, morning, Christchurch London Central Service. How are you doing today? Uh, just to say, on Alpha, there's also an Alpha course in Sutton. So far, they've got more people coming to their Alpha course than the whole of the central service. It's close, but my wife is making my life a misery because they're winning. So please, go invite loads of friends. We're well into double figures, but we can do more than that. So break through the fear barrier, invite your friends. Let's make Thursday evening a brilliant night. On to today. We are on week two of a two-month series on the subject of prayer. And we actually think this is a really important topic for us as a church right now. The series content is coming up on the screen behind me. Joe Wells kicked things off brilliantly a couple of weeks ago. And we're actually producing a whole load of resources to go alongside this series. Blogs on the website, emails that we send out every week. So do make sure you're on the mailing list. You can sign up through the website. Uh, Maybe some connect groups want to focus on prayer over the course of this term. And there's also a page of book recommendations to help you dig deeper into what prayer is. Is all about. I want to add one more recommendation to that list, which is Philip Yance's book on prayer, for which he studied each of the 650 prayers in the whole of the Bible. It's a bit dense in places, but he's got some really helpful things to say. Uh, Each of the services are also looking to do their own prayer meeting over the course of this two-month series. More info on that in due course. And then at the end of this series, Wednesday the 15th of March, we want to invite the whole church to a prayer meeting in central London. We're asking connect groups not to meet that week so you can make that evening a priority. We've got news to share, loads to pray for, and we would love you to make that a priority. Wednesday 15th of March, be great to see you there. On to today, and the subject that I have been asked to speak on is the subject of fasting. Oh, happy day. Now, I think it's worth making clear at the outset that fasting is not, is not the same as dieting. And this talk is not important because we're all packing a few extra pounds after the Christmas holidays. Uh, Some of you will know this. Uh, Last January, uh, January 2016, I said to my wife, Joy, this is the year I'm going to get fit. By the end of 2016, I'm going to lose over 20 pounds. I will have, I said, the body of a god. Well, by the end of the summer holidays, I put on well over a stone and a half. Um, My wife, Joy, turned to me and said, well, Andy, turned out that god was Buddha, which I didn't appreciate. (laughs) Buddha never claimed to be a deity anyway, was my reply, which, while factually accurate, only inflamed things further. And uh, as a result of my wife's encouragement... Over the autumn term, I decided for 100 days to fast all alcohol and all sugar. No cakes, no biscuits, no pastries, no cookies, none of that stuff. But the sole purpose was to get slimmer. Now, you can be the judge as to whether or not that worked. And while that might be considered commendable, and while there are a whole load of modern-day articles on the health benefits of fasting, people say, yeah, it can be a good thing for you to fast. Actually, that falls well short of the Bible's reasons for fasting. So what on earth does the Bible have to say about this hugely unpopular topic? Well, I'd like to start by reading our passage for today. If you've got a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 4. It's a very well-known story about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And we are going to read from verse 1 through to verse 14. It says this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. 
The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. So what is fasting all about? Well, the wider context of this story actually sheds a little bit of light of what is going on here. Final words of Luke chapter 3 are all about the genealogy of Jesus, which reminds us, amongst other things, that he is the son of Adam, the son of God. And the reader is supposed to make an instant comparison between Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and Adam and Eve's temptation in the Garden of Eden. I'm sure you all know the story. There's one tree that God has said, you're not allowed to eat from that tree. The devil comes along and says, oh, did God really say that? Look how good it is. Go on, take and eat it. Adam and Eve reach out. They take and eat of that fruit. And everything is ruined because of that one act of disobedience. And this whole taking and eating deal is like this recurring problem that infects humanity. A few examples of it in the Bible. Genesis 25. Esau ends up selling his birthright. Why? He wants more food. He's hungry, gives it all up for the pleasure of the moment. Numbers chapter 11, Numbers 21, Psalm 78, remind us of the Israelites who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, grumbling against God for, amongst other things, more and better food. 1 Samuel chapter 2, the house of Eli ends up getting cursed because his sons eat forbidden food. Ezekiel 16 reminds us of the sin of Sodom, described as a very wicked city, which was called being overfed or full of food, so much so that they ignored the plight of the poor. Now, whatever you think of any of those stories, I think this whole taking and eating picture sheds some really interesting light on what's really going on in the human heart, on the tragedy of the human condition. We take and we eat. It's this picture of this desperation for more. It's like we've become consumer junkies. A few statistics on this to illustrate this coming up on the screen behind me. Psychologists now estimate that we today own six times more stuff than the previous generation. 30, 40 years ago, the average supermarket contained nine to 10,000 items. Today, if you go to Tesco, you've got up to 90,000 products to choose from. Just extraordinary. We are bombarded with up to 5,000 advertisements every single day. Buy more, buy more, buy more, buy more. And of course it works. As a nation, we are now 1.5 trillion pounds in debt. That's up from 1.45 12 months earlier. Then there's the media. Recent report by Lifehack estimated that the average, the average social media user reads over 54,000 words every single day. That is the equivalent to reading a novel a little longer than The Great Gatsby every single day. On average, we check our mobile phones every 4.3 minutes. In the office at work, we check our emails every 1.5 minutes. On average, we watch a staggering five hours of television every single day. In fact, we now spend more time on tech stuff than we do asleep. And as we go on this consumption rampage, we are literally consuming the planet as we go. 
Rainforests are being depleted. Greenhouse gases are on the rise. Global temperatures are going up. The ice caps are melting. One of the biggest challenges for our own and future generations. Adam takes and he eats. What a picture of the human condition. Now, it's worth reflecting on where taking and eating manifests itself in our own lives, where we are hungry for more and more and more and more. And the danger is we take this whole consumer mentality and we apply it to the subject of prayer. Occasionally, I see prayer feature in the press or there's science experiments on prayer. Generally, they focus on just one question, which is this, does it work? If I ask God for more stuff, will he give it to me? Even when it comes to prayer, metaphorically speaking, I can be taking and eating more, please. Now, of course, there is nothing wrong with praying for ourselves. I confess, uh, I pray for myself more than anyone or anything else. But very often, to be honest, my prayers do smack a little bit of immaturity. Before Christmas, I asked my children, age five and four, what do you want for Christmas? My five-year-old boy, Brody, said, Daddy, I want all the toys in the world ever. His sister, age four, said, yeah, Daddy, all the toys, all the toys. Now, being a loving father, I did not respond by saying, oh, dark-hearted evil children. Where did this greedy and materialistic spirit in you come from? No, I know where it comes from. <laughs> Hanging out with your kids in the church kids' work, that's where it comes from. But when they said that, I thought, no, you'll grow up. You'll learn. How did the kid who got everything they wanted when they wanted it turn out? Like my sister, but that's another story. <laughs> We all know, patronizingly simple point, if God gave us everything that we wanted, will that deal with the human heart? Of course, no. One of the books I've loved reading recently is Tim Keller's Making Sense of God. I recommended it at the carol service. In that, there is a quite brilliant chapter on freedom, probably the key value in our individualistic, westernized culture. And incidentally, why a whole load of people think, I don't like the Bible or the God of the Bible that much. Because he's putting all these boundaries, these do's and don'ts in place that restrict my freedom. I don't want any God telling me what to do. I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. Very Western idea. The problem is, is when you put that life philosophy first, it always, always, always breaks down. Why? Because it undermines some of the group institutions that are essential for a free society. So, for example, right now, I am free in my family with my wife and three children. I'm free to do anything I want. I'm free to spend all my money on myself if I want. Not on toys for them. No, 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 all for me. I'm free to spend all my time doing what I want. I don't want to change nappies or help them with homework. I want to watch movies, go out with friends, go see football. The problem is, if that is my key goal, personal freedom, I end up undermining my whole family unit. It just ends up disintegrating. That is one of the points that the 19th century social philosopher Alexei de Tocqueville made which essentially was this, when in a whole society everyone lives like that, I want to be free to do whatever I want to do, you not only end up undermining the democratic institutions that are essential for a free society, but then you need an ever more authoritarian and controlling government to police everything, and you end up losing the freedom that you long for in the first place. Let me illustrate. Imagine a football team. Imagine two football teams full of glory hunters. Arsenal against Spurs, where personal glory comes ahead of everything else. People think, I'm going to pick the ball up with my hands because I'm free to do what I want to do. I'll take the ball beyond the white lines, thank you very much, because I'm free to do 
what I want to do. I'll punch my opponents in the face if I want, because I'm free. No ref will tell me what to do. Well, what will happen is you need an ever more authoritarian and controlling referee to police everything, dish out red and yellow cards, the crowd end up getting angrier, and the game never gets played. That is kind of the point that de Tocqueville was making. You see, perversely, it turns out that if I decide to restrict my freedom, I'm going to play within these boundaries, I'm going to submit to this agreed set of rules, it turns out that if I do that, restrict my freedom, I am freer to play a better game of football. That works at a family level as well. If I and my family decide to restrict my freedom, I won't spend all my money on me. I want to give gifts to them. I'll sometimes do things that I'd rather not do, change dirty nappies, clean up after everybody else. It turns out that if I restrict my freedom, we are freer to build a more loving and caring home. Less freedom for actually more. That works at a family level, that works at a societal level, and it works at a personal level as well. So right here, right now, I am free to drink as much alcohol as I like. But if I drink and I drink and I drink and I drink and I drink, at the end of that road, I suddenly discover, oh, I am not so free. That is why so often in the Bible, this whole taking and eating mentality is likened to slavery. Because if I live for that, for consume, consume, more, 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 I will end up becoming a slave to whatever it is I am consuming. It turns out if I restrict my own freedom, I gain a greater freedom, like the athlete who says, I'm not going to be so free to eat all the burgers and chips that I want. I gain a greater freedom to compete at the highest level. Less freedom for more. You see, that's part of what is going on in this passage. It's a little part, but it is part. Jesus has been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. He's hungry, and the devil comes to him and tempts him. And just as an aside here, there is no evidence whatsoever that the devil comes as a physical being, certainly not with horns and a tail may have been a voice in his head. That certainly changes the way how I perceive evil might work. We just don't know. Either way, the devil comes and tempts Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you're hungry. Turn those stones into bread. Take and eat. Similar temptation to the Garden of Eden. Of course, Jesus is hungry. He could take and eat. He could do just that. But he replies by saying this, no, 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 man doesn't live on bread alone. In other words, bread's good. Nothing wrong with bread. But he's living a life less freedom downwardly mobile for a greater kind of freedom. In fact, as we shall go on to see, he is actually coming to set people free from slavery. You see, one of the free reasons that we fast is actually in restricting our freedom, we can actually gain a greater freedom. It helps us shake off some of this taking and eating mentality that infected humanity in Genesis chapter 3. helps us overcome temptation. And different kinds of fasting can help us overcome different kinds of temptation. So perhaps if I could crudely defy, uh, divide what the Bible calls sin, that's this taking and eating, self first, settling for God's second best mentality, into two camps, sins of commission, bad things that I do do, lying, cheating, stealing, and sins of omission, good things that I don't do. Different types of fasting can help me overcome different kinds of vices. So for example, sins of commission, bad things that I do do. When I fast, things like food, well, my body says, oh, I'm hungry. I want more food right now. I'm going to learn to say no to that. And as I learn to say no, it's like I'm exercising my saying no muscle. So when temptation comes along, I am more able to say, hey, no, I won't cheat on my taxes. I won't lie to that person. This is one of the points that the Oxford scholar and author C.S. Lewis made. He wrote these words. When you were training soldiers, you practice in blank ammunition because you'd like them to have practice before meeting the real enemy. 
So we must practice in abstaining from pleasures, which aren't in themselves bad, but if you don't abstain from pleasure, you won't be good when temptation comes along. It's purely a matter of practice. But other forms of fasting can help me with sins of omission, good things that I don't do. I was chatting to a dad at the school gate last term. Leaves a large church in South London, and we were talking about this talk. And he said last year for one week, their whole church decided to fast all forms of media. No TV, no internet, no social media, no mobile phones. I was kind of twitching at the thought. He said it was utterly transformative for us as a community. He said the first thing we realized was how much time we actually have to read, to rest, to reflect, to pray. But then he said it kind of brought the whole community alive because people were like, I'm not going to watch TV. There's no internet. What am I going to do? I might as well see other people. People started eating together, laughing together, getting to know their neighbours in new ways, getting involved in the local community, serving those who are in need. In fact, as he was talking, it reminded me of probably the most famous passage on fasting in the whole Bible, which is not about giving up stuff. It's actually about stopping inactivity and passivity. I know many of you know and love Isaiah 58. God says this. Isn't this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, set the oppressed free. Isn't it to share your food with the hungry, provide the wanderer with shelter? Then, verse 8, your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing quickly appear. Then, verse 9, you'll pray and God will answer. Am I doing all the good that I could be doing right now? Not even close. Maybe if I fasted passive activities, maybe if in 2017 I watched less Lord of the Rings reruns, you'd get less quotes in your sermons, I'm afraid to say. But maybe through less freedom in here, I would be a bringer of greater freedom out there. Why do we fast? Helps us overcome inner battles. Less freedom in here, greater freedom out there. But that in itself doesn't come anywhere close to explaining why we fast. In fact, that is very similar to virtually every religion, because pretty much every religion fasts. So to really explain what's going on, I need a couple of volunteers from the congregation. John Lazart, you'll do nicely. If you'd like to come to the front, please. The power I feel I've got right now. Lars, you'll do. Come to the front, please. Thank you very much. Right, uh, uh, Lars, if you stand on this chair for me, please. Joel, if you stand on this chair. For the sake of this illustration, stand. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Lars represents almighty God in heaven. (laughs) Joel represents self-absorbed humanity, okay? (laughs) Now, when we decided to go our own way, Genesis 3, I want independence. Great chasm opened up between us and God and the wonderful freedom and the relationship that we were created for, almost really epitomized by the wonderful selfless love depicted in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And incidentally, one of the things, as an aside, that went in this chasm here is death, is death. Now, just to be clear on this, death in the Bible is described as an utter horror and an enemy of God, but it is also a mercy. It is also a mercy. Because this whole taking and eating mentality is taken so seriously in the Bible that when it's taken to its nth degree, it utterly ruins humanity. Imagine, for example, what would happen if Hitler could live forever? Or Pol Pot or Stalin? Or the worst dictator that you could imagine? Imagine if they could live forever. We'd just be utterly ruined. That's why you get that bit at the end of Genesis 3 where after they take and eat, God says, well, they better get out of paradise now lest they reach out and take of the tree of life as well. Death is a horror, but it is also a mercy. And the problem is with most modern day ideas about fasting is people think it's a way of bridging this divide. 
You get a feel for this in Luke chapter 18, where a, a guy comes to the temple and he starts praying, God, I fast twice a week. I'm the man. You must love me so much. The idea is essentially this. If I discipline the passions of the flesh by learning to say no, well, you will overcome temptation as we have seen. You'll be a better kind of person. Then God will like me more and that'll help me get to him. But of course, as Luke 18, amongst other passages, epitomized by the Pharisees, shows the best that leads to is self-absorption, pride, and arrogance. There's nothing to help this whole taking and eating mentality. And in reality, for most people, if you're like me, what fasting really does is it shows how weak we are and unable to ever bridge this divide. First time I ever fasted, I'm in my late teens or early 20s, and I said to myself, I'm going to go without food for a day to focus on God. I was so hungry the whole day. I was like, oh man, nine hours till I can eat again. Eight and a half hours till I can eat again. Oh man. Eight hours, 25 minutes till I can eat again. Eight hours, 24 minutes till I can eat again. You get the picture. I remember walking down this busy shopping high street and this thought came into my head. I don't know where from. Can't have been me. Must have been the devil. Your fasting food, chocolate milkshakes, don't count, do they? That's a drink. I thought, oh yeah. Went into McDonald's and I stood there. I watched people. It's got a straw. It's not a food. It's a drink. Went up to the counter and ordered three. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I kind of sloshed home and got no praying done whatsoever. See, when I fast, it reminds me not, oh, I'm an amazing faster. It reminds me there's nothing I can do to bridge this divide. I am so weak. And what Luke chapter 4 is really about is not the power of fasting, but how I actually need somebody to come in the middle and help me cross this divide. Enter Jesus. Joseph Mukungu. This is a metaphor, just to be clear. No Messiah complex, please, Joseph. <laughs> Stand on the chair. What Luke 4 is really about is identifying the person that can get us to God. Firstly, Jesus is better than Adam. Because Adam gave in to temptation and Jesus did not. Secondly, Jesus is better than Israel. The 40 days kind of mirrors the 40 years that Israel spent wandering the wilderness, grumbling about the food, amongst other things. In other words, Jesus has walked where Israel walked, where you and I have walked, and he has not failed. But there are other comparisons as well. For example, Jesus is better than Moses. The language in Luke 4, not time to show you now, it's startlingly similar to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Or it talks about Moses, the lawgiver, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Only, rather than Moses giving the law on tablets of stone, these boundaries that if we live within them will help us live a freer life, Jesus is going to come along and write the law on human hearts. I'm going to want to live a better kind of life. I'm going to want to live a freer kind of life. That's what Luke 4 is really all about. And that's a bonus for you. Not every service will get this today. It is no accident that on the night that Jesus ended up giving up his life, he takes bread and breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. And just a bit of bonus teaching. Actually, it's the same day in the Jewish calendar that he hangs on the cross. Just put your arms out on the cross, Joseph, that'd be great. Because the Jewish calendar started in the evening. In that wonderful picture of creation, Genesis 1, we're told there was evening and morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. So when Jesus breaks bread, he does so knowing, before this day is out, I'm going to be hanging on a cross. And he breaks the bread. He says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And in taking and eating, what I am basically saying is, I am done living for self. Taking and eating for me. I'm going to follow the God who became downwardly mobile, who ended up giving up his life. I'm going to participate in his life so I can obtain the freedom that's available in and through 
him. And here's what this all hinges on. Here's what it all hinges on. Can this guy in the middle conquer even death? Can he beat even death? If you get tired, I've got one more story. You can put your arms down just so you know, okay? Work those guns, Joseph. Work those guns. I'm a huge fan of a guy uh, called John Ortberg. Brilliant author, speaker, leads a church in California. Told a true story that uh, made me giggle recently about a friend of his called John Anderson, who's a kind of church leader in rural America. And one of the jobs for him and his co-pastor is they have to drive long distances to towns where there's not churches to conduct funerals. Well, a while ago, they'd done this long drive, done a funeral. They get back into the hearse because they own a hearse to do this. And John Anderson's feeling really tired. And he says to his co-minister, look, you know what? We've got a long drive. It's barren wilderness. No one's going to see me. Do you mind if you drive and I sleep in the back of the hearse? <laughs> well, his co-minister says, well, no one's going to see us. Might as well. So John Anderson lies down, falls asleep in the back of the hearse. Off they drive. What they forget is because it's a long drive, they have to stop for fuel. So a few hours later, they pull into a service station. Pump attendant comes out, starts filling the hearse with fuel, bit freaked out by what looks like a dead body in the back of the car, John Anderson's body. Well, as the glug, glug, glug of the fuel goes into the car, John Anderson wakes up, rubs his eyes, thinks, I need the bathroom, rolls over, starts knocking on the glass. The pump attendant freaks out. The dead guy's alive! The dead guy's alive! Now, the point is this. That's a normal way to react when something like that happens. And they knew that 2,000 years ago too. And one of the reasons I have become convinced that the Christian faith is true is how on earth otherwise did that ragtag bunch of uneducated fishermen and tax collectors end up turning history on its head? My to the Roman Empire wanted to snuff it out. And yet somehow they all went to the grave convinced this was true. I think it's because they knew the dead guy's alive. The dead guy's alive. He is risen. Therefore, because of Jesus, we can now get to God. That's what this is really all about. So, Joel, what I want you to do now is cross through Jesus, hang on to Jesus, then get to God the Father Almighty. And then I want you all to have Father, Son, and Joel a big group hug on this chair over here. Off you go. Go on. Go on. You're not here all day. Over you go. Here we go. Go on. There we go. Hang on to Jesus, Joel. Hang on to Jesus. Right now, Jesus, I want a group hug with all three of you over here. Come on. Just if that helps you out. There we go. There we go. Now, big embrace. Big embrace. Right now. Three more minutes, guys. Three more minutes, okay? <laughs> now, here is the 64. Show a bit more love, please. Come on. <laughs> Father, there we go. Here's the $64 billion question, therefore. If what I need to get to God is Jesus not fasting, why fast? Why fast? Here's the best way I can come up with of explaining why. At the heart of the Christian faith is not a bunch of rules. It's a relationship. That the New Testament describes the Christian as being hidden with Christ in God. Now, my most significant relationship, apart from with God and Jesus, is with my wife, Joy. Picture of us on our wedding day coming up. There we are. Haven't changed a bit. I think you'll agree. <laughs> Sideburns a little shorter. That's it. Now, on the day that we got married, there was a hugely significant legal change in the status of our relationship. Not married. Now we're married. What happens if the following morning Joy wakes up and sees me and how I look first thing and she goes, ah, didn't know you looked like that. Bad luck, Joy. We're still married. What happens if the following week I'm really grumpy and angry every single day as I can be sometimes. Bad luck, Joy. We're still married. Brings wonderful protection and security for when I fail. But now I am married, I now need to live married in the light of this hugely significant change in our relationship. That's kind of what happens here. 
When I come into Christ, when I decide to start following Jesus, there is a legal change in my standing before God. Justified, forgiven, free. What happens if I fail and fail big time? Doesn't matter. Still married, still forgiven. But now I am married, I now need to live married. I, there's now, it's, it's like following Jesus, just like in my marriage. It's not the end of my, my and Joy's journey, it's only the beginning. There's now a wonderful relationship to explore. And God has given us a whole load of what I might call spiritual disciplines or spiritual pathways to unpack the wonder and the glory of this relationship. And fasting is just one of them. Actually, if I go without food, it kind of reminds me of the spiritual hunger, what I'm really created for. Actually, it's a way of saying, you know what? You know, I need food, but I'm not made for it. I'm made for something greater than that. Jesus, when he says man does not live on bread alone, he quotes a verse in Deuteronomy, what were we made for? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, this is what we are created for. And so if I decide never to fast in my whole Christian life, forgiven. I don't have to fast, I get to fast. Because I can explore more of what this relationship is all about. Can I have a round of applause, please, for God, Jesus, and John Lazar? You may go and sit down. Don't have to fast, I get to fast. So what might laying down self and exploring more of that relationship look like for me? Well, I've talked about fasting food. Let me give you another example. Some of you may have heard of a guy called Henri Nouwen. Brilliant man. Came from an elite family, very wealthy, taught at the likes of Yale and Harvard. Was a committed follower of Jesus. The following Jesus for many years, he began to feel a bit empty inside. All his books that he'd written, Somehow prayer even, it wasn't quite doing it for him in here. It's like, God, where are you? Where's the life that you promise in the Bible? The wonder of this relationship. And the answer to his heart's cry came through a very unexpected source, through a friendship with a man called Jean Vanier, who headed up what were called L'Arche communities, which are communities for those often severely affected with physical and learning disabilities. And Jean Vanier said to Henri Nouwen, come and live among the poor in spirit and you will be healed. Henri Nouwen describes it as the most important moment of his life. He likens it in one of his books to Luke chapter 4, where he turns his back on the power and the prestige and the influence he had and become downwardly mobile like Christ instead. These are just a few words from his book, In the Name of Jesus, which I think is a quite brilliant read. So I moved from Harvard to Lush, from the brightest and the best wanting to rule the world, to men and women who had few words, and were regarded as marginalized at best to the needs of our society. The first thing that struck me when I moved to a house with many handicapped people was their liking and disliking of me had absolutely nothing to do with the many useful things I had done. Since no one could read my books, they did not impress anyone. Since most had never been to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale and Harvard did not provide a significant introduction. These broken, wounded and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my powerful self, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, and forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, able to give and receive love apart from any accomplishment. I find that very moving. Henri Nouwen discovered more of the love and grace of God, not through grasping for more, but through letting go. You know, there are temptations to take and eat, metaphorically speaking, everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. But I read an article a while ago where pastors like me were offered the chance to earn extra money by doing product placements in their sermons. 
So rather than me thinking about how can I serve you best when I preach, no, make some more money. Then I realize nowhere is sacred. Just like Adam and Eve in Eden, who were duped into thinking that by getting more, then they could be satisfied. I mean, I am sure that fruit in Eden looked good. I am sure that fruit looked spectacularly good. Probably not as good as my favorite fruit, Del Monte fruit cocktail. <laughs> so juicy and sweet. <laughs> favorite in the Tilsley household for generations. Now, while you laugh, while you laugh, we will all be tempted this week, all of us, maybe even probably today. And in the moment, if you're hungry, oh, it feels so good. But when you take it and eat it, what are you left with? An empty tin. If you're living for stuff, for promotions, for money, it is empty and vacuous living because there will always be more that you need. We were made for more than that. Can I ask you, what are you living for? Stuff like this. Or are you living for a relationship with the creator of the universe? Why do we fast? Helps us overcome temptation. Less freedom here, more freedom out there. Helps us explore relationship in more depth with the one that we were created for. And thirdly and finally and most briefly of all, fasting helps connect us to more of God's power. One final comparison. Verse 1, Jesus goes into the wilderness full of the Spirit. He comes out in the power of the Spirit. Now there's mystery here and I don't fully understand it. But it seems to be the case that fasting adds real weight and force to the prayers that we pray and the life that we live. A few examples coming up in the Bible of where fasting was linked to significant breakthrough for the church. Paul, who established much of the church, talks about fasting often. And he is just one. Like if you look through church history, it is littered with men and women who testify to the significant power that fasting seems to bring. Let me just list a few of them for you. Polycarp, Tertullian, Cyril, Luther, Knox, Wesley, Spurgeon, Brainerd, Edwards, Latimer, Ridley, Cranmer, Finney. Finney led about a million people to Jesus. Amy Carmichael, Sadhu Sundar Singh, described as the St. Paul of India. Reese Howes, Catherine Booth, Susanna Wesley, C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, John Stott. These aren't just Christians who fasted who each testified to the amazing power of fasting. No time to tell you all their stories. Let me just give you a couple. 31st of May, 1756. Britain looks doomed on the brink of invasion from the French. King George II realizes our peril and he calls the nation to fast and pray. John Wesley, the preacher, wrote this in his journal at the time. The fast was a glorious day, such as London has scarce seen since the Restoration. Every church in the city was more than full. Imagine that. And a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God will hear our prayers and there'll yet be a lengthening of our tranquility. And yes, there was. Fast forward 200 years, 27th of May, 1940. The Allied forces looked doomed, actually at threat of annihilation, total annihilation in Dunkirk. King George VI this time realizes if we lose here, the war is lost. Hitler, the Nazis will triumph. He calls the nation to pray. He calls the nation to fast. On the back of that day, three extraordinary things happened. Firstly, inexplicably, Hitler decided to overrule his generals and stop the advance of the German troops. No historian has ever fully explained that decision. Secondly, a huge storm arose and grounded the Luftwaffe fleet and stopped them bombing the Allied forces. And thirdly, at the same time and yet, a strange calm, historians say, 
descended on the English Channel, allowing thousands of boats to come across and rescue the Allied forces and take them to safety. The slide coming up with all their helmets left on the Dunkirk beach after salvation. Now, was that the result of a nation fasting and praying? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe the clearest link between fasting and breakthrough for the church is in Korea. Now, it's estimated there that over 20,000 people have now completed 40-day fasts. 20,000. Just a bit of an pastoral aside here. If any of you are thinking of doing a longer fast, do not do so without getting advice from four or five other people that you love and respect first, because there are health risks associated. But nonetheless, 20,000 40-day fasts, just extraordinary. Here's the stats. 1884, the first Protestant church was planted in that nation. By 1984, there were well over 30,000 churches. Just to do the maths on that, that is the equivalent of one new church being planted every single day for 100 years. Another day, another church. Another day, another church. Another day, another church. Is that because a nation decided, I'm going to do away with self and pursue a greater kind of freedom? I think maybe. I think maybe. You know, one of the reasons that I have decided over this academic year to do more fasting and praying than I have done for a long time is because if this Christianity thing is true, I want more of the power and presence of God than I'm seeing right now. And one of the reasons I think this series on prayer is really important for us as a church is I think there is some breakthrough that God might have for us that will not come in response to clever strategies or 2020 visions. It will come in response to answered prayer. And I long for breakthrough. I just, I'm hungry for it. I long to see thousands of people come to know Jesus. Just think he's the answer to everything. I want to see an end to homelessness, trafficking, knife crime, gun culture. I want to see people find freedom in their families and end to family breakdown. Wouldn't that be amazing? So I want to make a bold ask. I want to call us as a church to pray. Let's seek God over the course of this series. Let's not make it a bunch of talks. Let's live it out. Because if we really want to see great stuff happen, oh, we so need him. Less of us, more of him. That's what I'm hungry for. I want to call you to that. Why do we fast? Less freedom in here, more freedom out there. Why do we fast? We were made for more than stuff and bread. It's just empty living. Time to explore more of who we were created for. Why do we fast? Connects us to more of God's path. You hungry for it? Maybe the band want to come up. Why don't we all stand to our feet? We're going to sing a closing song in a moment just to focus on our wonderful Saviour Jesus. And then I'm going to just invite people who would like prayer to come to the front. One thing I detect amongst us as a church family is there's a real thirst for more of God, for more of his power, for more breakthrough in our life. And some of you at the start of this year, you're like, I want that. We would love to lay hands on you and pray for you. Some of you, there's like leadership calling on your life. We'd love to lay hands on you and pray for you. For others, you know, there's just this breakthrough in my family or my work. and I need God's help there. We want to pray for you. It may be you're here and you're like, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I want it. We'd love to pray for you. And I don't want to big myself up, but I want you to know this because I think it might instill a bit of faith. I have been fasting and praying for today. 
that many of us would experience more of God's power in our lives for you. In a moment, I'm going to invite you forward. Say, if you want that, come get prayer. But for now, let's just focus on our wonderful Savior, Jesus. Let's just worship him. And then I'll close in a few moments' time. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.